Who am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. We're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Wash your hands and put on a face mask. It's Election Shock Therapy, Distributed Ops Edition. From Maple Grove, Minnesota, I'm Chris Moore, and joining me in a Google Hangout are... Andy Bramson and Blaine. Matt Kukum, also in Blaine. And Sam Mulberry in Arden Hills. Sam, you are in your office because um, you, you are an essential worker. <laughs> I determine myself to be essential, let's be honest. I just asked really nicely if I could you are be. Essential. Yeah. You're, you're, the, you're the essential worker of our hearts, my friend. That's so. Um, but to prove your essentiality, that's not even a word. Um, but uh, you have a meeting, right? Kind of, yeah. <laughs> um, do you know? What, do you guys know what I have today? This. This is what I have today. This wow. and managing uh, four online courses is what I have today. And so. a six-year-old and a four-year-old or whatever, yep. right? Yeah. If we don't, we're not recording this for video, but if you can see behind me, there's the makings of a rather impressive uh, um, castle behind me that's being built uh, while we're talking. So, um, guys, how are you? How are all of you feeling the days? I had a lot of Zoom meetings today. I am mm. tired of screens. Are you zooming with students? Um, no, actually, it was like interviewing TAs for humanities, and then oh, okay. the meeting. I was also interviewing TAs all day today, Andy. So we're in the same boat. <laughs> yeah. Yep. At least, I mean, the good news is I think we found some good ones. So that's good. Yeah. Fantastic. Yep. Matt, how about you? Uh, today was mostly spent recording lecture videos um, for most of the morning, which was just loads of fun. So I don't even <laughs> know how many lecture videos I've recorded this semester. It's more than I can, more than I can count at this mm -hmm. point. So now, well, there's more things we could talk about offline, but one thing I do want to ask you online and before Sam completely gets involved in his other meeting is what's one thing you've started doing as a consequence of this semester that you hope to continue doing even as we turn to some kind of new normal? Nothing. No, just, <laughs> just an utter repudiation of the entire semester. Yeah. All right. I don't know. I might try to integrate more online more online assignments perhaps, um, or perhaps if I know I'm gonna be out a particular day um, in the middle of a, you know, of a week, for example, for a conference, um, I now know how to quickly and efficiently put together an online lecture and I could use that as something for students to do when I'm gone. So I think there's some, some useful things I'll employ on occasion. Um, I don't expect this to um, dramatically reshape my <laughs> approach to teaching. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, here, I agree. I think it's maybe less daunting to think about, you know, what you might do if I'm if I'm sick or something, and you know how I might kind of fill that that gap. Um, but I think the you know, the thing I hope to do that I'm doing now that more than I was doing before is take walks in the neighborhood, and I don't know if that really helps my teaching, but um, but it's been nice to get more exercise. So that's my upside. I would agree uh, with with Andy on just being able to more regularly exercise because of the the way this changes the limits on my day. 
Uh, and in terms of teaching, we brought back CWC, the radio show, which is an old podcast mm -hmm. that goes back to 2006. Um, so we built that in as actually part of our of our course. Um, and we're having a really good time doing it. So I think we'll probably find ways to, to keep something like that going. Cool. cool. Nice. I I echo a couple of things you said. I've, I've worked out and exercised more consistently over the last uh, month than I have in a really long time. Hopefully I can keep that going. What if the whole political science department came back in the fall and was just like, just jacked, just like, um, just intimidatingly large, uh, muscle muscular. Um, I really but, don't want to right. I'm walking. I'm not like, <laughs> just to be clear. No, I'm, I'm, I'm straight up doing like a prison yard workout. I'm getting like real swole. Um, <laughs> Out there yelling at you, like, Get me exactly, now. exactly. <laughs> Tommy's, Tommy's starting to shank me if I can't come up with a pack of six. Um, wow, that got dark. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Um, I actually, I like the idea. I, I'm, I'm more attracted now than ever to trying not a fully flipped classroom, but to throwing some lectures online and then using the class experience to do something after students have processed a lecture. Sort of like a you know flipping on occasion kind of kind of approach. I think I'll definitely try that uh, next fall, even assuming we're face to face. Um, I do want to acknowledge something else before we dive into today's topic, which is uh, we didn't record last week, and the uh, political science department, along with everybody else at Bethel, uh, was in quite a bit of turmoil last week. Uh, Bethel University announced uh, a significant number of faculty uh, position reductions. That was a consequence of a long-term trend of declining enrollment. And so uh, I don't want to go into the details of that other than to acknowledge that it happened. It's heartbreaking for us. Uh, last week was not a good time for us to be podcasting. But I do want to say for our listeners out there, if you're affiliated with Bethel or attached in some way, the three of us um, are retaining our positions and we'll be back in, the, um, in, uh, in this capacity, this podcasting capacity, at least for the near future, as long as we can keep this going. So you're not rid of us yet. And um, please keep <laughs> Bethel both in your, in your prayers, but potentially also in your budgets as, as you're able to, to uh, donate to our annual fund. And if you have any questions about that, you can email us, channel3900 at gmail.com <laughs> or electionshocktherapy at gmail.com. And today, uh, both of my colleagues here in the political science department said that they wanted to talk about the coronavirus and specifically the public policy implications of the coronavirus. And so um, I think I want to give them the first foray into this because both of them um, attacked or not attacked, uh, bombed me, yes, bombed me with articles suggesting that maybe the United States has the wrong approach uh, to dealing with uh, the coronavirus. And so I want to give them a chance to make that case. And then um, I think we're going to talk about it more generally. So uh, Andy, Matt, what's the potential problem with the U.S. approach to the coronavirus? Well, I don't. I want to just say too. I don't think it's just the U.S. Right. I think this is a, a broader issue um, because I don't think our approach is so wildly different in, in its essentials um, from other countries. Uh, I think one of the concerns we have about this virus is that the testing has not been as widespread as it should be. And so the consequence of that is we don't really know how quickly this is spreading, how far it's spreading. Um, but what we have recently coming out are some indicators that it's, it's perhaps much more contagious 
but much less deadly um, than we initially thought, right? And so, for example, there was a study recently in a prison where they tested people and they were shocked at how many of them actually tested positive, right? Um, because like 95% of the people who tested positive were asymptomatic, which meant you couldn't tell they were sick at all, but they tested positive for this virus, um, which suggests that it's spreading more um, than we think, but then it might not be as deadly on average. Now, again, to be clear, people are dying. This is serious, right? Um, but it's, you know, the question is like, you know, it, it makes a big difference if you have 2% of people who get it are dying versus 0.1%, right? Um, what is that number? And that number is really unclear. Um, now, we already knew this was an issue, right? We knew that, for example, um, even people who are getting sick are often not getting tested if they're not very sick, right? And so um, we know we're overestimating it somewhat, but this suggests we might be overestimating it way more than we even think. And so I think one of the concerns is then, is it the right call to cause so many other ripple effect problems, which we are doing uh, by the shutdown, something that may not be that incredibly deadly on average? That's the question. Yeah, I mean that's a, that's a really excellent summary. Um, I mean, there's there's more data that's coming out that sort of complicates our picture. So the trick is to find a way to measure um, particular populations. If not measure a whole population, then to at least measure a significant, a statistically significant sample size. So in the mm -hmm. case of the prisons, you can test everyone. So you're testing the whole population, which is ideal. Obviously, you can't do that. Um, in sort of normal situations, right? But you can test a significantly, a statistically significant sample size. So this has been done in some locations. So there's a Stanford study that was um, released just about 10 days ago um, in which they um, got a large enough sample, did a large enough sample of testing um, in, I forgot which county in Los Angeles, uh, California, and they tested 3,500 people and they determined that actually the virus had spread um, a lot further than was initially thought. Um, and this sort of initial, this initial, you know, um, study indicates that the spread of the virus may have maybe more than 50 to 80 uh, times more than we initially thought. Um, and of course, mm -hmm. that actually brings your sort of case fatality rate um, way down, down to like potentially 0.1, 0.2%, potentially, if that holds mm -hmm. true in other areas. Of course, the problem is that's just one county. There's limits to the extent to which you can extrapolate that to other areas. But but there's other other data that's coming out from other places, the United States and actually other countries, including Italy, um, that show that the, the, the spread of the virus is far more extensive than we originally thought. And this really changes the calculation for not only for thinking about the death and the death and hospitalization rates, but also thinking about what our policy response should be and even how important testing is. If a huge chunk of the population already has it, um, that's going to change the sort of test you're going to do. That might make testing mm -hmm. a little bit less important, right? If you have a lot of people that have already had it, um, it's going to affect um, how you approach, how you approach, you know, opening up um, the economy and how you approach um, sort of reevaluating the effectiveness of social distancing amongst certain populations that are less vulnerable, right? And there's more data we can get into, but mm -hmm. the point is that we have we have increasing amounts of data that are complicating sort of what was the original sort of consensus or view on the coronavirus. So I want to adumbrate uh, just a couple of uh, the things we don't know. And you guys have really hit the nail on the head in describing the first big criteria here, which is we don't have a really good sense of how many people have already been infected with the coronavirus. We're starting to get better information on that. 
And one of the reasons we don't have that is we don't have testing. And you hear this being used as a political tool, mm-hmm. um, just testing. Why don't we test it? We don't have enough tests. We don't have testing. But even that is overly simplistic because there are a couple different kinds of tests that we need and a couple different reasons that we need them. Yeah. And so forgive me for uh, grabbing the mic and holding it with two hands here, but let me just kind of run through um, a couple of things that we as, as political scientists care about from a public policy standpoint. There are two kinds of tests. There's the kind of test that can accurately determine whether someone who is sick or has the potential to be sick that is in still in, is in sort of the incubation period um, has the has coronavirus. That's really going to be important, not just for figuring out um, the infection uh, spread in a given place, but also for what's ultimately going to be really important for public policy responses down the road. We're going to get to pro- contact tracing in a little bit as a pro- as a policy response, but that's going to be really important for that. The other kind of test, and this is the one that uh, Matt's referring to is a test to determine if at some point you had contacted coronavirus because there is at least it appears there's some portion of the population which has received which has gotten the disease or has been exposed to the disease and but has not has been asymptomatic hasn't shown any effects from the disease itself and obviously it's a whole lot better for society if a larger portion of society is in that category it would be wonderful to find out that you got the coronavirus without you ever knowing it. And now you have this, um, so you've sort of passed this this um, hurdle. That is not something we know yet. And so we're still working on that test as well. There's a bunch of other things we don't know also. So if I can just run through a couple of them. If we knew any of these things, it would help us make better public policy responses. One of the things we don't know, for example, is once you've acquired the coronavirus, whether you showed symptoms or not, how mo- how likely are you to catch the virus again? Um, we know that uh, in most cases with most illnesses, uh, you do get some level of immunity. Uh, if you catch the flu in a given year, it's a lot harder, but not impossible to catch the flu a second time that year. Um, viruses do mutate and change, and so it is possible to catch a, a pretty similar virus again, as the flu demonstrates, and coronavirus is similar to the flu as a virus. Um, but we don't know what the post-infection immunity rate is. That would be helpful to know. We also don't know, um, as you guys said, how um, much of the population has already been infected. And I'm just, this is very personal. Um, hopefully you don't think this is this is silly. But uh, back in like mid-February, I had a very mild, like sore throat. I lost my voice for like a day and a half, sucked on a bunch of cough drops and basically moved on and just assumed it was kind of the run of the mill cold. I'm now kind of secretly hoping that I had coronavirus and that's all it did to me. Um, but I don't know. And, yeah. I, and I'm not in a risk category, so I'm not taking a test right now. And also not leaving my house. Um, I, I don't know. Like that, it would be wonderful to find out that that, that was all that, that all that that happened. But I, I can't count on it. Mm-hmm. Um, what else don't we know? We also don't know a, a, a three point ratio: the ratio of the percent of people um, who get infected in a society to the ratio of people who are symptomatic in that society. That is, the people who get infected and show symptoms, and then out of that group, the people who die. Right. Um, uh, mortality is the easiest to figure out, but um, the other two groups are, are hard to determine. And so 
Um, these all guide public policy responses. And unfortunately, Andy's right. For re and I say unfortunately for uh, reasons we're going to get to later on in the public policy response, but there is a huge difference between a 2% mortality rate and a 0.2% mortality rate. It really changes our public policy responses, even though we're still talking about loss of human life in very tragic numbers. Right. Um, so for all of these, re and, and, th and this is to say nothing, by the way, of variances and things like um, how accurate tests are, right? Um, and how accurate certain treatments are as we're developing those treatments. Now we're a long way away from treatment, so we're almost gonna hold off on that until we get some public policy responses. But all of these things are deep sources of uncertainty just from the, from the medical side. And now we're gonna get to the public policy response side. Um, and before we get to organized governmental responses, let's talk about societal responses. So guys, as you think back through sort of um, uh, modern history, that's, a, that's an oxymoron, sorry, modern history, but how do societies respond in, in situ are there any analogous situations to the coronavirus? Are there any analogous situations to how people have been responding to, to this crisis? Is this like 9-11? Is this like the bird flu? Is this like SARS? Is it like the swine flu? Is it like um, the financial collapse of 2009? Are there any analogies worth paying attention to? I mean, we certainly had, you know, kind of broad, um, you know, public health concerns, right? And I'm probably not the best person to kind of walk through what those past responses are. I know um, our colleague in history, Chris Garrett, put together a a list of kind of you know responses that you got to the 1918 um, you know flu, which was of course a um, one of the analogies we hear a lot about, right? Um, and there were some, I mean, there were some places that were you know shutting down public worship and you know kind of taking some, some cautious measures. And obviously, we lost a lot of lives um, in that in that instance, right? But um, I think one of the in other interesting things, I mean, another one I've heard of talked about is the polio thing, and people say you know like. We don't think back on that as a big societal traumatic event. I mean, it was big. This was in the 50s, right? Because, of course, people died. People were crippled, right? I mean, this was very serious. But it, what it didn't do was kind of um, shut down society, right? Which then has all sorts of ripple effects. And I think this is going to be much more of a serious effect overall because it's not just affecting the people who obviously are going to lose family members. Um, it's affecting everyone, right? This is, this is going to be a traumatic event on the level of the Great Depression, possibly, certainly of a 9-11 or something like that, um, much more so the 9-11, actually, I think. Um, yep. You know, we're going to remember this, right? And mm -hmm. and there's going to be, you know, there's going to be a lot of businesses that will die. There'll be educational institutions that will die, right? Um, even even if we, you know, go back tomorrow, which we're not going back tomorrow. So, you know, I think it's, it's interesting to think about that effect. And I think this has a relevance to health too. I mean, like, it's not just, you know, we, we think about this as like, well, we want to save lives and indeed we, we should, right? And that's an important goal of government. But we also have to think about, you know, if if people lose their livelihood, right? Um, are they going to be able to have access to medical services, right? If people lose their health insurance, um, they won't go in for health crises, right? Some of those people will die when they didn't have to, right? And I think there's those kind of concerns. So government has to weigh this and say, you know, how do we think about what's good for the most people? And that's, you know, if we're shutting it down for a something that has a two percent mortality rate, that's one thing. If we're shutting down society for something that has a point two, that's a really different thing. And what are the costs going to be um, yeah. in terms of life, right? And I'm really concerned yeah. about that. 
Let me uh, just pause here to introduce the first uh, of several psychological concepts that I'd like pe uh, people to be sort of ruminating on as they listen to this, and that helps us understand our situation. And that is one of my favorite things to teach in my political psychology class, and it's the concept of taboo trade-offs. And taboo trade-offs are, are basically this. It, you guys are laughing. You guys are smiling at me on the because on the, you've heard me talk about this enough times. But um, we're as humans, we don't do a good job translating certain kinds of values into um, other kinds of values. So I have a I'm I'm pretty good at figuring out how much a car is worth and translating a car into dollars, right? I'm really bad, and most people are really bad at translating human life into dollars. We do okay, sort of, at trolley problems. So thinking about sort of um, how is a, is a human life worth another human life? Is a human life worth five human lives? We're pretty we're decent at that. Um, but we're not good at saying is like how much is a human life worth in terms of dollars? How many dollars would you give up for a human life? And the answer can't be, or the answer often is for people. I don't want to think about that. It, it's, it's I find that morally distasteful to think about it. But statistically, we need to, and we especially need to in a public policy sense, because if we saved one person's life, but the economic consequence was so severe that 10 people functionally lost their lives as a consequence of it, we'd say that's a terrible trade-off, right? Just from a pure utilitarian perspective. But we're not good at thinking that way, yeah. right? Um, and that's at the core of our public policy response to something like coronavirus. Right. Yeah, and if I could jump in here, I mean, there's this concept that you that philosophers talk about called incommensurable goods, right? Mm -hmm. um, that there are different sort of human goods that we have that um, you can't necessarily translate into other goods. They are all of of equal weight and valuable and value, and you can't draw sort of immediate comparisons. And so there are potential trade offs whenever you lose one, and it's not immediately clear. Um, how much that causes a loss in another and if that's um, a morally acceptable or not. Um, right. And in, in regards to the trade-offs themselves, it's interesting that um, one of the things that you've seen framing this debate is sort of the trade-off between public health and sort of economic well-being, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that the people who support public health are the people who want maximum social distancing and the people who support economic well-being want to open everything up. But really, um, what you see is not a trade-off merely between sort of money and economics and public health, but sort of human flourishing across the board, and indeed health, human health across the board, right? So it's it's easier for us to measure current public health risks, such as hospitalization and death rates from COVID, than it is long-term health risks from um, that have resulted from our policy response. And Andy mentioned a couple of these already. So this is delayed treatments. This has to do with mental health and suicide, has to do with mm -hmm. um, malnourished children who aren't getting um, lunches at schools, has to do with the effects of hospitals losing money and personnel, has to do with um, all of the health effects associated with decline of income and wages and, and job loss. It has to do with um, a lot of different things that are very hard to measure and to assess. And so as human beings, um, we tend to weigh the things that are that are immediate and weigh the things that are measurable. Mm -hmm. And even experts um, are biased in this sense towards these things because we're all human, right? Um, that makes it really difficult for us to assess trade-offs in, in a more objective fashion um, because we don't have the right information and because we tend to be risk averse and mm -hmm. we tend to 
emphasize those risks that we can immediately wrap our minds around. Um, so this isn't sort of a case of public health versus monetary or economic goods. It has to do with public health versus other dimensions of public health, right? Yes, absolutely. Um, and and so you know, and so you can't. So I think we need to adjust the frame that is that is commonly being used um, to for, for this kind of discussion. Yeah, and that's, that's a really important. Point. I agree. Yeah, and this is the second bucket of unknowns that we have to deal with uh, in a public policy response. So, for example, we know that during economic downturns, domestic violence increases. It's a very strong effect, actually. Uh, we know that in economic downturns, a suicide increases, and it's a pretty reliable effect. What we don't know is um, we can we can model how much we think those things are going to happen in this particular case because we know we're entering into a recession. That's almost a foregone conclusion. But we don't know how long that recession is going to last. We don't know how deep that recession is going to be. Um, and those uh, questions add a second layer of uncertainty. So if we knew this recession was going to be absolutely economically breaking and incredibly harsh, we might say, well, even if the mortality rate of coronavirus is 0.2%, the amount of uh, mental health issues, suicides, uh, violent, domestic violence, other kinds of things more than outweigh that. And we should try to get the economy started as quickly as possible to ameliorate some of those effects. But we don't even know that because we don't know the shape of this recession that's coming because we don't know how long we're going to have to essentially self-induce it. Now, we have a bunch of people across the board who are making these kinds of arguments, and we're actually seeing this show up in different states. We talked two weeks ago about how 50 states are producing 50 different societal responses uh, to this coronavirus. And in some ways, some of those states are erring towards more sort of maximum social distancing, maximum shutdown. Uh, and some of them are erring towards getting the economies restarted. And part of the arguments on both sides of this have to do with these questions of public health. So they're, I, I really do think most uh, these states are, in fact, good faith actors, but they really are interpreting sort of the the value propositions here differently for their states. Yeah, I think that's right. So there's a secondary, there's another level of uncertainty to make all of this even more messy. And one oh, of the, yeah. oh, yes. Um, it gets better. One of the culprits are that is blamed, especially by the side that thinks that we have been too draconian in our responses to coronavirus. Um, one of the bet noirs is the, uh, is the media. So um, would one of you like to, to make the case for why the media is as problematic in the, in the case of a pandemic? Um, or, sh or shall I punt that out there? I mean, I'll, I'll try to take a crack at it. Um, so first of all, just to establish a baseline, it's pretty well known or established um, that the media have a profit interest in covering the most dramatic and negative news. Um, this is something that I talk about in, in my classes, right? There's, it turns out, again, because humans are, are wired to react more more strongly to negative news than to positive news. Mm -hmm. And because the media to you know run as a business needs to draw attention, um, there is indeed a, a motive to cover the dramatic and to cover the negative. Um, and what better time for the media than during a pandemic, right? Um, this isn't to slam them or to say that they're operating in bad faith. There's probably some that are, um, but there's a strong motive to emphasize the dramatic and the negative um, and, and not to cover, um, and, and to also cover things as if they are knowns um, and to talk less about the things that are that are unknown um, and to and to perhaps um, 
sort of report on on the statistics irresponsibly. Thankfully, I think we've seen over the past month, uh, media figures and journalists have gotten better <laughs> at actually understanding some of the um, some of the statistical nuances involved in, in, in trying to understand this this pandemic. So that's sort of the Matt, baseline. Matt, would you say that maybe uh, it's a good idea for journalists to be liberal arts majors so they can understand science and math and politics all at the same time? I agree. I mean, yeah, totally, totally. Um, the um, the level of, um, I mean, it, <laughs> I don't want to slam journalists too hard, but the number of journalists who have who have used um, used statistics in less than fully responsible ways has been pretty astonishing. Thankfully, I think a lot of them are learning um, and, and good for them. Um, so, so yeah, we, we could say more about this, but so, but I think you have to understand what the baseline motivation of the, of the media is to make sense of, of why they tend to be, they tend to cover, um, the coronavirus in the way that they have. I have more to say, but maybe, maybe one of you want to jump in at this point. Yeah, I think, I mean, I agree with that. I think it's, you, know, you can think about that profit motive and I think I'll connect this just to, to the politicians. I mean, I think there's also this. You know, so politicians are risk adverse. They don't want to, you know, be stuck with, I was callous. I was, you know, I didn't react mm -hmm. enough. And so there's a tendency to say, well, we're going to err on this side, right, of taking these precautions. Uh, because again, they're thinking about that kind of short term, like this is what I, I feel like I know, right? Um, as opposed to kind of what are the, the long term impacts of all this going to be. Um, and then the media kind of picks up on this and says, okay, well, so if this is really serious, I mean, let's go find these stories. Let's go find stories of people who are dying. Let's, let's show their face. Right. I mean, like, you know, Washington Post is one of the places I'm looking and they're all about like, let's tell these stories. Right. And so you're emphasizing all these people that die and then people think, wow, it's a lot of people that died. Right. And it, it is a lot in one sense. Right. But it's also true that, I mean, like you could take like, let's say cancer, right. And say like, we're going to yep. report all the deaths from cancer. Right. We're going to have a running number on our front page of the newspaper of how many people have died from cancer, how many people have been you know, diagnosed with cancer. And it would be really big. It would in fact be much bigger, right? And, and we could all be in a panic about that, right? So it's, you know, part of it is like, what do you what do you choose to emphasize? And you want an extreme example, right? Back in the 90s, um, there was this whole sense that you know, like road rage is a big problem in the United States. Everyone is <laughs> raging in road rage. It's, 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 you know, like just, I mean, don't get out of your, don't, don't make signs of people because they might get angry at you. And it turned out like this was a completely overblown story off a couple things, right? It was very, very minor, very few real instances of this. Um, but it became a kind of media focal point. Now, this is real in a way that the road rage wasn't, right? So they are picking on something real, much as they would be if they were going to talk about cancer all the time or something like that. But at the same time, right, there's this question of by focusing on it, are you making it bigger in people's minds uh, yeah. than it should be? I think that's right. a and, and to add to that, too, I mean, I tell students this, is that just like statistics, news is not reality. It's a particular picture yep. or lens into reality, which you have to understand how that lens is being used and how it's constructed. And if you understand it, then you can use it in a responsible way to get a, a clear understanding of what objective reality is. But mm -hmm. if you don't know about how the news is constructed, how things are deemed newsworthy, what's, what gets covered, what doesn't, if you don't understand what statistics are actually measuring and what they do and their limits, then you are more likely to be misled yeah. on what the stats and what the news are telling you. And it so happens that 
that if you are misled on what the news is telling you, it tends to lead you to a, a far more negative and um, view of what is actually going on in reality and, and causes you to weigh certain factors more than others. And so that's why you get a certain degree of fear and hysteria, people buying, you know, a year's supply worth of toilet paper and, and so on. It's not to say that there isn't danger. This isn't merely media hype, but there has been some hype. Mm -hmm. And this hype causes its own problems. Right. And you know, like another uh, example of this is just the you know, leaves thing we've seen in the past too, where it's like, you know, the media would focus on, um, you know, murders, on violent attacks, right? And people mm -hmm. would think crime rates are rising in society when in fact they were actually falling, right? Um, but if you ask the average person on the street, well, clearly it's, it's rising because the local news always leads off with somebody got attacked. <laughs> this happened, yeah. this terrible thing happened in our town. And in fact, I mean, in, you know, they have this perception like, you know, law and order is falling apart, police aren't doing their jobs. No, it was inaccurate when you looked at the statistics. But, you know, media knew this grabs people, they'll watch, they'll read. Um, so it leads and yeah. it's mm -hmm. all perception. Yeah, I think both these things can be true. And yet, uh, what I mean by that is it can be true what Andy's saying that the media has an interest in publicizing the kinds of stories that are going to get us to pay attention. And the things that make us pay attention are violence, sex, and money. So they're going to lead with stories about those sorts of things. And Matt's also right that uh, uh, media coverage, news coverage is a lens. That said, what I don't want you to take away from this if you're listening is we're just saying, oh, forget the news media can't trust anything they say. Rather, we need to educate ourselves to figure out how we observe that and how we absorb news and, and how, we, how we critically consume it. Mm -hmm. And also to remember that there is a huge scale between uh, what I essentially are good faith actors and, and bad faith actors. Okay. So um, whether you are someone who leans conservative in the United States or someone who leans progressive in the United States, there are plenty of, of sources, new sources, that have that kind of lens and that lean progressive or that lean liberal or that lean conservative um, and yet are very much good faith actors. So I tell my students in my class, pick up the Wall Street Journal, pick up the New York Times, pick up the Washington Post, um, pick up uh, – there, there's lots of – and lots of good regional papers around the United States as well. These are – they all have a – especially their editorial page has a particular partisan slant and yet – they are all good faith actors, and I'll I'll go. F I I have less confidence in uh, some of the cable news networks, but they are often good faith actors. Um, but as we start to get out into the more fringier parts of uh, of news media, um, uh, and I'm going to resist sort of naming and shaming, but like uh, sort of uh, non traditional news sources. Uh, blogs associated with certain people, um, the far left, the alt-right, uh, these are often not good faith actors. And I'm going for that sometimes they're bad faith actors. They're promoting things that are antithetical to uh, uh, science, uh, sort of uh, scientific consensus. Uh, and in, in really dark cases, we have seen some evidence just in the last month or so that, uh, like the election in 2016, foreign intelligence services are spreading bad information about coronavirus amongst other populations. Um, they're not doing this because they're trying to get more people sick. They're doing this to decrease the trust in that in that country's media environment. And that's problematic. And so um, don't just throw up your hands and say you can't watch the news, but recognize what I think Matt said about being a careful consumer of the news and understanding what uh, what's being told to you, right? 
Yeah. You know, I think it's important to note, it's no knock on the media that, I mean, you know, that they have these self-interest motivations, that there are certain, you know, things they operate under, you know, the right or left, whether you're right, all of them in one way or the other, to some degree. Um, we all do this. I mean, this is this is part of what it means to be human. I mean, when I talk to my students about doing good research in political science, one of the things I you know tell them is like, look, I mean, we are all biased in important ways. We all have limits on our perspective, limits on what we can understand. And the the really important thing is not to pretend that we can somehow get out of that because we, you know that's not what it means to be human. It's to be as self conscious as we can and be as self aware as we can about what those biases are. Right? It's one of the things I like in good good scholarship is when I read a book and they can sort of acknowledge like here are the things I know I don't know. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and classic Socrates line. Right. Like Socrates is the wisest of men because he knows he doesn't know. Right. Um, and and I think that's important for us to realize in all of our lives, and that certainly applies when we're thinking about the media too, is being aware of, hey, they have these limits, just like all of us. It's yeah. not, I think that's an important thing. And let me let me offer one more apology uh, for the media, which is this. Um, the media is designed to scrutinize public officials. And so in as much as they are maybe sometimes ill-equipped to report scientific studies, sometimes they're ill-equipped to think statistically, just like all humans are pretty poor at thinking exponentially, for example, and a lot of, a lot of pandemics operate on exponential functions. Um, at the same time, politicians are pressured by their voters and by the media as a proxy for their voters to speak in terms of definitives rather than probabilistically. So if if, uh, if Governor Waltz got up and said, we're going to institute a certain form of social distancing because we think that there's a 76% chance that this will reduce uh, infection rates, but there's also a 24% uh, chance it will have no effect or actually make things worse, um, that would be a terrible news story. But if you got up and said, this is going to work, this is going to help us stay healthy and keep us safe, that's an easy story to report. And so politicians um, are pushed towards speaking in definitives when they should be more circumspect too. So we're not letting them off the hook, even as the media is reporting on what they're saying. Um, yeah, it, we just, we don't like uncertainty and we're really bad at wrestling with it. Yep. Um, and and I would, I had hoped that the media, um, given their position in society would be better <laughs> um, at reporting on uncertainty and reporting on the complexity of the situation. Um, but unfortunately that's not been the case across a lot of outlets. So, yeah. So that brings us all of these levels of uncertainty and all of these all these questions uh, take us up to what what we're actually doing. And I want to focus, I, I think, at this stage, now having sat in my house for a month or so uh, in the uh, in, in the loving arms of my children and my wife and not much else. I will say <laughs> I will say that. Um, we uh, we've started having groceries delivered to the house, so we're not going to the grocery store. And um, the the lady who delivers our groceries, it's been the same lady three times now. Like she's basically our BFF at this point. It's like talking to <laughs> talking face to face with anybody who's outside your family is just like a special treat. Now we're just you know. Um, so Cora, if you're listening, hi, and we can't wait to see you again. Um, but. Uh, <laughs> I know it's going to be a birthday party next year. <laughs> you know it. You know it. Um, all right. So in all seriousness, it seems like most U.S. and most world policy responses have revolved around a specific set of policy options, which is some combination of general societal social distancing, 
some combination of selective self-quarantining, some <laughs> amount of testing, and some amount of contact tracing. And then all of this sort of with a sort of a, an eye forward to the future at some point of the potential of medical treatments and vaccines. So I want to take each of those things. We don't have to spend nearly as much time on this, but I want to get to the policy implications of these things. But let's just do some quick definitions. So what is uh, social distancing? Where, and how, what are some of the forms of social distancing we've seen in the United States? We don't need to go into like all the permutations, but just sort of general categories. Stay six feet away from people. Don't get together with people in groups. Yep. Yeah, so it's limiting limiting group gatherings, limiting individual contact, and in some cases, uh, shutting down certain portions of, of social life, right? Um, shutting down schools, shutting down uh, uh, non-essential businesses, right? Uh, getting Sam to be declared an essential worker so that he can go to Bethel uh, versus uh, non-essential workers, those sorts of things. Okay, so that's that's pretty straightforward. Self-quarantining is different than social distancing in that self-quarantining is designed to be that if you have had exposure to coronavirus or if you yourself are symptomatic with coronavirus, then you, rather than society more generally, need to quarantine yourself, need to stay home, right? So this is different than social distancing and is a different sort of philosophical approach. But it fits better with the third point, which is contact tracing, which is maybe something uh, most Americans have heard less about. So what's contact tracing? Well, contact tracing um, is related to testing, and it's especially useful if you have limited tests available. And so you test, um, so whenever someone it has a positive test, and especially if they're symptomatic, um, you then investigate who they've had contact with, um, especially yep. close contact, family, friends, et cetera, um, and then go off to test them and to see if the disease has spread to them. Um, and if so, to sort of isolate them before they become symptomatic and spread the disease further. Yep. So it has, so it's a sort of a targeted, more targeted approach um, to isolation and quarantining. Okay, so this this raises a question before we get to sort of things like medical treatments and vaccines. Why it, some societies are doing a lot more contact tracing than others. South Korea is doing a lot of, South con, of contact tracing. Uh, the United, and so is Sweden for that matter. The United States is doing very little contact tracing. Why? Um, well, a couple of things. So, first of all, the United States is huge, and I mm -hmm. was doing some reading, and sort of to have large-scale, effective contact tracing that really, with the goal of really limiting the spread of of the disease, which I think is another discussion we should have, by the way. Uh, but that sort of um, contact tracing would literally require many tens of thousands of public healthcare workers who already have other jobs to do, right? Mm -hmm. So just logistics are difficult um, the, in a country the size of the United States. Sweden and South Korea have far smaller populations. Um, and also one of the big impediments, is, especially if you're trying to compare the U.S. to South Korea, is that um, we really value uh, civil liberties here in the United States. And and um, South Korea, uh, what has made their, their contact tracing so effective is that they have really um, made extensive use of technology basically to track everyone's movements over time, um, which requires basically tra the, the, pub the, the government actively tracking everyone's location via cell phone location data. Um, and there's, there are simply laws and uh, Supreme Court precedents in the United States that will not allow the U.S. government to do that. And even if there weren't obstacles in the way to that, there would still be sort of um, sort of our civic culture, which which really values privacy, 
um, and that kind of the civil liberties that attend it. Um, and so that kind of technologically enabled um, contact tracing is not going to be nearly as feasible for that reason here mm -hmm. in the United States. Yeah, in fact, in South Korea, there's actually been some instances in, in sort of more populous places where um, people will get emails or get uh, push alerts on their phones saying basically someone in your apartment building, um, it was exposed to the coronavirus, you should get tested and possibly self-quarantine and sort of giving, you know, basically giving direct guidance. So could you imagine if everyone in your neighborhood received updates based on your medical history? I mean, this is something that would be an anthem yeah. in the United States, but is something that's, um, it's assisting South Korea um, in controlling uh, the outbreak of the virus. Big so, brother is watching. So. Yeah. Um, yep. <laughs> so in, in lieu of that, um, and, and part of this is part of this is like as as Matt said, it's philosophical and it's cultural, right? We've built up a a real um, valuation in the United States of of medical privacy, um, which doesn't exist in other places. And in this case, medical privacy is potentially an impediment to using something like contact tracing, which probably will be important going forward. There's a recent a report uh, estimation by uh, I think it was the congressional the CBO. It said to do proper contact tracing in the United States, we'd need to employ full time about 180,000 people um, just to do contact tracing, yep. which in the end, depending on how calamitous the economic downturn is, might actually be worth thinking about doing. First of all, it would give 180,000 people a job that needed one. Um, but second, it would uh, um, allow people to much more quickly get back to work because if you can do effective contact tracing, you don't need to do social distancing. Um, which is the kind of the point. Well, that, that kind of brings up um, just what you think social distancing is designed to do, right? Um, oh, that's was, a good point. Go on. Yeah. So, and I think that's really a discussion that that's worth having. And what I've been having with my public policy students, originally the idea of social distancing um, was to, was a temporary measure to, um, to so-called, you know, flatten the curve. In other words, mm -hmm. to prevent spikes in hospitalization that would, tax the healthcare system so that they really wouldn't be able to take care of the people who are sick, thus resulting in even more deaths than there otherwise would be. Um, and so that was the original idea behind social distancing, a temporary measure. Now we've moved the goalposts, literally. Um, there's this idea that we use social distancing in the long term, not to flatten the curve, but to sort of make some of that curve go away, right? Um, to actually re not only reduce this the spread over time, but to reduce the spread in absolute terms. Um, and it's really not clear if broad scale um, social distancing across an entire country is, is something that works. There is almost no precedent in history for doing this. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not clear um, that that it's it, it would work, first of all, and it's even less clear that it's actually economically sustainable. Um, and yeah. so that's why you see some countries such as Sweden um, taking a somewhat different approach. Um, instead of having very broad social distancing, um, they do they focus more on much targeted sort of um, quarantining of vulnerable and elderly populations, exactly. for example, yeah. and taking that approach. So the um, you, you use the phrase moving the goalpost, and I think that makes a lot of sense because um, – if we're actually, I'll stretch the analogy here. If we're going to move the goalposts, <laughs> it presumes that there's an end zone, and the end zone, yeah. if you're going to, if you're going to sort of have this perpetual, not perpetual, but long-term social distancing, it's not about flattening the curve. It's about getting to some kind of a, of a cure, some kind of a vaccine, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Now, um, 
if we could social distance, let's say, I'm just going to make up a number here. This is not accurate. But if we could social distance until <laughs> December, because we knew by December there would be a widely distributed vaccine that would protect people from the coronavirus. You could say, well, that makes a lot of sense. We'll, we'll basically make extreme social distancing to, to keep the curve very flat until we can all get the vaccine, and then we don't have to worry about it anymore. We can all just resume our lives. But there's real problems with that. One, we've never really been effective at having a vaccine for a coronavirus-type disease. So even if we pour enormous amounts of resources into it, it's not clear we're going to get to a vaccine definitely by December. And scientists are suggesting that we may be at least 18 months out if it works. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, social distancing for that purpose seems problematic when you bring back all the questions we've been talking about in regard to uh, the effects in the economy and other kinds of, of health conditions, mental health conditions, those, those sorts of things as well. Rather, I think Matt's right. The initial point to of social distancing was to flatten the curve. And now it looks like in most places in the United States, at least, We've given hospitals uh, enough time to procure the proper PPE to set up the, the proper systems to not be overwhelmed by coronavirus patients. We may now be moving into an environment in which we're basically going to start to relax some social distancing, knowing that the infection rate will go up, but at a moderate level so that hospitals can continue to cope with it. But this is a hard moral argument to make as you acknowledge that even as this happens, people will still continue to die of coronavirus. Um, and the death rate may increase within the context of a, of a social policy, right? Right, because, you know, social distancing, if, if the idea is to social distance until you have a vaccine that is highly effective, you could be waiting not just a year and a half, you could be waiting five years. Most vaccines for viruses take a minimum of five years to develop. Now, obviously we have a lot of simultaneous sort of crash programs to develop a vaccine, but let's just say even even 18 months, you know, you mm-hmm. can you can have extreme sort of, you know, shutdown of, of the economy for 18 months, but um, it's, you know, like you said, it's, it's, it's trade-offs. Um, yep. and, and when you couple sort of the, the known economic harm that you will incur, Versus the fact that we've never actually tried to limit the spread of a disease in absolute terms over population. And this has never actually been tried before. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we don't even know the benefits when you couple the, the questionable benefits against some very severe costs. Um, you know, you it, it gets it can be it becomes in, it's hard to me to see how you can make an argument um, that the only responsible moral choice is to keep everything shut down indefinitely. Right. And we can recapture this down for December next year, right? I mean, from a, a viability standpoint, we have to be able to survive. We have to be able to eat. We have to be able to, you know, live. And and I think there's that that concern. I mean, like, you know, you can do this for a month, right? There's big consequences to doing it for a month as we have. Um, you can maybe do it for two months, right? But you can't do it for six months or a year, really. Um, and so... You know how do we how do we balance? I think those those different goals. And I think you're right. I mean, the the vaccine may be a pipe dream. I mean, it may not happen, right? Like, and I think we have yep. to be aware that you know people keep saying like, oh, in 18 months, 18 months is best case scenario. I think of a vaccine, right? And that's mm-hmm. if they pull it off, and it's not clear they can. So you know, you may just really have to live with the fact that this is the reality. Is that this is you know, this is what we deal with, and and some people. Um, aren't going to survive that, right? Um, just like, you know, ultimately we're all not going to survive this life, right? <laughs> but, 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 
that piece, right? That, you know, much as we'd like to solve problems, we'd love to have a cure for cancer. Um, you know, we don't. And, and those, those are, you know, just our, our kind of fallen mortal realities. But let's be clear, though. A vaccine is not the only possible end state for something like coronavirus. Even if we never develop a vaccine, buying enough time will also give us um, opportunities to develop other palliative strategies for, you know, to get more, for nothing else, to get more ventilators in place, uh, to give a larger portion of the population a greater survivability of the disease, right? So the ventilator thing is interesting, right? Because increasingly, mm -hmm. what we're seeing too is that ventilators don't help. I mean, they, I mean, like, do they help a few people survive? Yes. Um, but most people who go on ventilators are dying, right? And yes. so like, basically, if you get bad enough to go on a ventilator, the ventilator is more likely than not, or at least as likely as not, not to help you. Right. Um, so even that, like that whole narrative about what we need is more ventilators, we need more ventilators, we probably don't. What we really want to do is try to keep people off the ventilators and acknowledge if they go on a ventilator, the odds are probably at least 50%. Right, but yeah. that's exactly, that's exactly a, my point. surplus of ventilators right now, too. Yeah. <laughs> okay, but, that, but that's exactly my point, is that yeah. initially we had thought, oh, well, this is the, yeah. the holy grail is to get more ventilators. But as we get more experience with the disease, we understand it better, and as hospitals are not being overwhelmed by it, we're able to develop better treatment protocols, which are going to improve survivability. And my example for this, I guess, would be the AIDS virus, uh, which we have not developed a vaccine for. Um, and we've had very, uh, we, we've had no success in curing it or very extremely limited success in curing it. But we've developed a treatment protocols now that functionally make it a non-threat for mortality in the United States. Um, once you, if, if you acquire the AIDS virus, there are certain kinds of drugs you can take that essentially um, extend your life almost to its natural end. Um, and so I would say that that's what we'd be shooting for with something like coronavirus is not sort of getting to a vaccine where it's no longer relevant, but getting to a point where the treatment becomes so routine that uh, the survivability becomes extremely high. Yeah. Um, Although for AIDS, that took decades, literally. To yes, it did. Point, so. yes, it did. Yes, it did. Yes, it did. So I think that that, that leads to this the, the, the last part of our sort of a, my buckets of uncertainty, which is time pressure. <laughs> Such a it's, great term. It's buckets of uncertainty. Yeah, yes, I like um, that. I'm gonna I'm gonna use that. So. Well, we have we have uncertainty surrounding the disease. We have uncertainty surrounding the public policy responses. And we have uncertainty surrounding time, and time hits in a couple kinds of ways. The disease itself is going to take a natural trajectory, right? It's going to have a crest, and we might be at the crest in Minnesota with a. Given our current policies, it might start to decline. Actually, um, it might—it's already declining in certain parts of the United States, and it's, it's still growing in other parts of the United States. We don't know if there will be a second wave. There almost certainly will be in the fall, but we don't know what that will look like in the shape of that. But that's a time function. It's also a time function that whether or not the disease has a second wave. Uh, we're going to have an election in November, um, and. Uh, the, the oh, election, the election, okay. yeah, and the, the the disease itself is going to play a role in that. If uh, Donald Trump does well handling the disease, or is perceived to have done well, he's going to be rewarded for that. And if he does poorly, he's probably going to be punished. And and that's uh, at least that's how democracy ought to work. Um, and so that's part of uh, the time frame as well. And there's also the time frame surrounding any kinds of treatment developments and those sorts of things. So time pressure matters, I think, a lot in, in public policy decisions as well. To say nothing of the fact that Andy's right, we can do what we've been doing for a couple of months. But beyond that, politicians are going to start to be punished by voters and by public opinion if they can't show real progress in some kind of way. And again, this is a problem for for, uh, for public perception as well, right? Because uh, the disease is 
any effects that any public policy options are having on the disease are going to lag the disease by at least a month or so, right? There's what, a, about a 10-day incubation period. People get sick or sick for a couple of weeks. So we won't really know if the things we're doing do well until we've been doing them for about a month. So we're only now starting to see the effects of what uh, large social distancing policies look like. Um, and, and then we and have to... to yeah, I was going to say yeah, to please. add to the time, uh, the, the time um, you know, bucket of uncertainty, it might also be the case that this is a, a seasonal virus that mutates over time and is kind of like the flu, right? Mm -hmm. uh, which that would definitely change sort of the, the policy and, and health response that we would have to it, but we're still uncertain about that. So. Yeah. Yep. Anyway. I think that the point you raised, Chris, is an important one too, in the sense that um, you know, one thing you always have to think about in politics is what is possible, right? I yeah. mean, what can we get people to cooperate with? And mm -hmm. as we've already noted, I mean, Americans were used to, you know, civil liberties, the freedom of, you know, movement and so forth, right? We are, we hold these things very dear. How long can you get a population to cooperate with restrictive measures? Because yep. if they can't, if they won't, right? Then you can do two things. I mean, either you just sort of keep saying that and you get widespread disrespect, which creates you know problems for the relationship between people and their government and means the policies become largely ineffective, or you can crack down, right? You can actually try to say, no, we're gonna actually enforce this. Um, we've so far in the US, we've been very reluctant to do. We have you know been issuing some misdemeanor things and things like that, but not a ton of cracking down on people who don't behave unless they're really, mm -hmm. really obnoxious about it. Um, so, you know, and that, and if you do try to crack down, right? I mean, you're going to get the you know, groups like the ACLU pushing back, um, and they'll have very good sort of Supreme Court case evidence to suggest. <laughs> or just low-level social disobedience. We don't need lots yep. of people sort of having. They're, they're, I, I guess I guess over the weekend, police broke up a thousand-person party in Chicago. Um, <laughs> uh, that seems like a bad idea. Uh, yep. But I, if just like you know. Up and down my neighborhood, my little suburban Maple Grove, Minnesota. There's like people hanging out with their neighbors on the in the in their front yards, uh, in yeah. packs of, of ten. They probably shouldn't be, but it's yeah. hard to keep this to keep this going without sort of yeah. real teeth. And yeah. are we gonna are we gonna start giving out citations in in suburban Maple Grove? Right, and already and already in you know like they, they're tracking like cell phones, you know, kind of going places and so forth. And already. Mm -hmm uptick in traffic in the last you know week uh, over what it was a, a couple weeks ago right mm -hmm. um, but already some of that's happening and as the weather gets nicer as we move towards summer you'd expect more and more of that to happen so the government has to be realistic about what can we actually pull off um, because pretending we're doing something when we're really not is, is worse interest. yeah 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 and it's as i tell my students it's the unintended consequences of policies right and it turns out that you know policies can do weird things to human motivations and behaviors and it, you end up you know actually exacerbating the problem you're trying to solve mm -hmm. the last thing i'll say and my last sort of warning this is not a bucket of uncertainty but rather a dire <laughs> prediction is um Ooh, better yeah is unfortunately, I see the shape of this increasingly becoming a partisan issue in the United States. And that would really make public health responses problematic. Uh, the president has, in terms of the coronavirus, he initially was sort of skeptical and then perhaps way too optimistic about um, the trajectory of the disease. Uh, and then was sort of, was sort of, sort of at war with himself would be talking about sort of uh, sort of really drastic measures, but then saying, but this will probably be fine. Uh, people, he's, people have focused very much on the 
essentially off kilter things that he said um, about using sunlight and uh, disinfectants to get rid of the virus within the human body um, really, I think is a nothing burger of a story. It sounds awful, but in, if you actually listen to the, the actual news clip in context, he's just rambly. Um, it's, um, it's, uh, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's ill-formed rather than malevolent, I guess is what I would say. Um, on the other hand, I think it is really problematic if you, if we begin to attach sort of opening the country back up to a Republican policy and social distancing to a democratic policy um, as much as possible. It is to the benefit of the United States to keep these policy discussions nonpartisan. And I'm not sure we're capable of doing that. Although I will say, I mean, if I can add a, uh, usually you're the silver lining guy, but I'll be the, the bright note guy here. I mean, much as I've raised some concerns about our particular, you know, social distancing policies and the impact those will have, I have to say, on that note, I've been very pleased with our government from Walls, who I think has, as much as possible, tried to avoid that gap, right? I mean, he's, he's avoided kind of being critical of Donald Trump. He said, look, I just want to work with people to try to resolve this. He said, you know, that he and Trump talked. They both said it was a good conversation, right? I mean, I thought that is right, right? Because you're right. I mean, this is a public health thing. It is not a Democratic issue, nor is it a Republican issue. Um, what we should be doing is trying as much as possible to work together for kind of the good of the population. And to Walls' credit, I think he's really been a good faith actor in, in trying to do that well. And I, I've been glad to have him as my governor as opposed to some other governors on both sides who I could name. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. and, and he's court and governors have really sort of stepped up and uh, um, Mike DeWine is a Republican from Ohio. He's been working closely with the Democrat uh, Gretchen Whitner from Michigan. And they're both working with Tim Walls, a Democrat from from Minnesota, to coordinate state responses, because obviously states want to coordinate um, if they're near each other. Uh, because uh, borders are borders are porous in the United States, uh, yeah. so they they need to coordinate sort of responses. And if you're going to open up liquor stores in one state and not in another, which you don't want, it's so much people driving across the border to buy booze. So uh, and, that and happened are, in Pennsylvania. So. Yes, it does. Um, <laughs> and so getting kind of those kinds kind of things coordinated is really important. And so I, like I said, yes, I think that's right. We have seen a lot of sort of nonpartisan or bipartisan coordination. I'm skeptical that's going to persist at the national level. Yeah, I think a lot of, um, I don't know, just perusing my Facebook um, news feed and even the sorts of articles that, I've, that I'm just seeing from various media outlets, there does seem to be the politicization of the actual information, right? Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. You know, one side, you know, just tribalism meets data, right? <laughs> and policy options that are themselves really not not you know inherently partisan or even ideological <laughs> um but but they have now been polarized and politicized um and i just think that's and by both sides right um mm -hmm. and i think that's that's truly unfortunate and to the detriment of of a sound wise policy response yep. yeah in as much as i think uh um liberal actors have um really portrayed trump's meandering thoughts as malevolent rather than meandering um and they're, they're on the on the on the sort of alt right side. We've seen protests of Democratic governors in the Midwest um, in some against some of these policies, and those protests were pretty explicitly partisan. Uh, they were organized by Tea Party institutions. There were a lot of pro Trump banners and, and and MAGA hats at those protests. So these weren't just about public health. These were decidedly partisan protests, and I think I think that more of that's likely to happen, uh, not less.
Yeah. Right. And yeah. Know. Yeah. I mean, it seems that, you know, because Trump has more often than not been in favor of opening up, um, everyone has sort of taken their cue from that. Well, if I am a Trump supporter, then that means I agree with opening up. If I dislike Trump, that means, well, the opposite public policy is is sound and good and wise. Right. And and yeah. hence all the you know camps you go off and and, you know, um, figure out what their you know partisan uh, talking points are from there. And you, yeah. you see this on both sides. It's it's the partisan tail wagging the dog of oh, public yeah. health. Yeah. yeah. All right, guys, this is. Um, this has been uh, your public health hour with the guys from EST. Um, anything, uh, anything uh, you want to recommend to folks as they're sort of entering their fifth or sixth week of social distancing? Any uh, any pop culture you're enjoying consuming, or any books you're reading? Andy, I know you've been posting regularly about your your quarantine reads. Anything you want to plug specifically? Yeah, I've been reading all sorts of stuff, and it's been it's been fun. You know. It's, Sarah and I keep talking about whether we should watch stuff, but we've barely watched anything other than with our, our kids. Um, it's mostly been uh, a lot of reading. Um, I'm, as I think I mentioned on here a couple weeks ago, I'm back into doing Sharon K. Penman's books, um, who's a historical fiction author. I'm reading her book about the land beyond the sea right now, which is about mm. the Seder kingdom um, in the, the 12th century. And it's, um, as usual, very fascinating. Enjoying the history of Christian thought with Houston Gonzalez, almost done with that. Um, posting on that tomorrow for my social isolation book entries um, and Winnie the Pooh with my four-year-old. So it's, <laughs> it's quite a, a variety um, and everything in between. <laughs> so, nice. Good time. <laughs> Lots of time to read. That's the upside, I guess. Mm-hmm. Matt, any recommendations? Oh, gosh. Um, I've been like wading through various readings and material for my ideologies course. And currently, um, I'm in the unit on conservatism, interestingly okay. enough. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, you know, been t- talking with students at least in my lectures about how conservatism is actually quite misunderstood. A lot of so-called conservatives don't really understand what conservatism is about. And Wait, are you conservatism that- hipster there, Matt? <laughs> I, you know, I'm just reporting the facts, um, so, so to speak. You would have liked conservatism back before it got big. Before it was cool. Yeah. Well, you know, so just, you know, unpacking sort of some of the original ideas behind conservatism. So from Edmund Burke, for example, um, and one of the takeaway points I've found helpful from from Burke's writing, which I think is is helpful for us today, is um, that, you know, we should we should not place too much faith in um, our individual capacity to reason through things. We need to be aware of our own prejudices. We need to be aware of our limited reasoning capacity. And so when we are doing public policy, when we are participating in public discourse, we need to have the kind of, a kind of um, intellectual humility um, to understand the limits of our, limits of our understanding, to go back to to Andy's previous point, to realize that we don't know um, the effects of the policies that we're endorsing, um, and that this humility should translate into cautious policymaking. um, And um, and should encourage us to to make policies only with great care and consideration. So that's, that's very much been on my mind recently. Yeah. So it's a cautionary note for our leaders, and it's a cautionary note as you interpret what the what the four of us have said on here today, or the three of us. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. 
Uh, Sam's back from his meeting. Sam, do you have any good? Uh, um, solve all these problems for us? No, no. I was just asking if he has any good pop culture recommendations. Or, I do. Uh, I do. So this is this is uh, something you should be listening to. So on this Thursday on the two five two, we're going to be breaking down a uh, something the students did where they they drafted teams for a fantasy. Uh, Tokyo 2021 Olympics. Chris, I just finished putting together my uh, 45 team big board. So I'm sort of the Mel Kiper <laughs> of the draft here. Like I have it broken down. I looked through the strategy, looked at the positions you have. So I'm going to send this to you when this meeting's over. I'm really excited about this. Oh, I'm so excited that you're excited. I, I right. like how the 252 is now synonymous with like pop culture. That's just that's great. right. Yeah. It works. That's what we do. That's how we, that's how we jam. <laughs> Let me do uh, a little bit. Um, this is not as highbrow as Edmund Burke, but it's sort of middlebrow. One of my favorite authors is uh, Umberto Eco. And Umberto Eco has a, um, a real fun novel called The Island of the Day Before. Uh, and it's kind of an adventure story with a little bit of a little bit of philosophy thrown into it, a little bit of science thrown into it. But the basic premise is this guy uh, travels around the world on a ship to try to figure out the uh, the mathematical properties of of uh, of longitude, which is a significant um, nautical issue. And what um, happens is he gets shipwrecked. And he gets shipwrecked on the ship. So the ship is, is run aground. Everybody else in the ship has disappeared. He comes out of sort of a coma. And he's the only person left on the ship. And then it's a question of what happens next. But it's such a story for, for, for social isolation. It's this guy, you know, in the midst of the tropics, uh, in sort of this beautiful climate. He can see this glorious, verdant island just across the bay. And he's stuck on a ship and he can't get to it. And nothing speaks to me more in social isolation than the island of the day before. So check that out if you have time. Um, you can always get a hold of any of us with your recommendations at electionshocktherapy at gmail.com, or you can email the podcast channel at channel3900 at gmail.com. Uh, we should be back in your feed next week. Hopefully we'll have something to say that doesn't involve the coronavirus. Uh, but until then, thanks for listening and go Royals. Go Royals.